everybody, and welcome to Sonic Talk, episode 484 of your Earth years. No, that's not right at all. I'll, I, I'll rephrase that at some other point, but, you know, sometimes you can wander into a sentence and not know how it's going to end, and that was just one of those times. Anyway, let's welcome everybody. Uh, this is the Sonic Talk podcast. We talk about music technology, music industry, software, controllers, DJs, synthesizer, all kinds of stuff, basically. So uh, sit back and you'll have about an hour of us chatting about the very same things. want to say hello to our uh, local chat room which is not them it's uh, this one here hello to the guys in the chat room uh, that's now you can find that on uh, sonicstate.com forward slash live should be a, a fixed web interface and of course we've also got the people who have joined us on youtube live uh, thank you very much to everybody for joining us it's been uh, it's great to have you so um we should say also thank you to our sponsors uh, isotope who will be giving away a copy of isotope neutron the mix assistant and uh, mix visualizing tool that uh, i know everybody feels quite uh, does a very good job. Anyway, let's now move on to some guests. We'll start with Mr. Dote. I haven't seen Mark Doty for a while. Mark Doty over there in yes. North Carolina? Currently North Carolina, but uh, not for long. Oh, okay. Moving on. Yes. We're going to miss the uh, the background, or are you going to endeavor to recreate your creative space wherever you go? Um, well, this is um, actually the artwork of my girlfriend, so it will come with me uh, wherever I go. It depends on what the space will be like where I end up. But uh, yeah, so technically it's possible that this could continue to be behind me. So we'll see. And of course, I wonder if the other thing that's behind you will continue to be behind you because you've got the Artoria Matrix brute there. I, I think you you didn't get the one I, I... You've got your very own. I think the one I had has gone off to tie, apparently. Um, that's what he's thinking anyway. I don't know if that's true. How are you finding it? <laughs> It's uh, well, it's not confirmed that it, it's mine right now. I'm just demonstrating it. We'll see what happens. But I'll tell you right now, within, I don't know, 15 minutes of using it, I was like, this is a thing I must have. I was not prepared for just how raw and analog it is for being a modern analog synth. Uh, it's just, and there it was it's there's so much to do i haven't even <laughs> i haven't scratched the surface and i played it for like an hour and i keep finding things like dude you haven't even like put the ladder filter into like bandpass mode it, which seems like a thing that shouldn't even be possible i don't know it, it's overwhelmingly amazing and uh yeah it's going to i don't even know how i'm going to yeah, it, it, how many videos would this uh, yeah yeah well i managed to get it into one but it was 30 minutes long so uh that's just the way it goes but anyway yes. um maybe we'll talk about that a bit later i also want to say right. hello to uh, mr dave spears in his very own look there's there's a common theme between you and mark except yours is on the left and dave's is on the right the, oh. the moog is there dave spears g4 software makes a fine software instruments how the devil are you i'm good yeah busy Busy, busy. Excellent. And uh, wavering. you're sorry? No, no, I'm sort of wavering between developer mode and tradesman mode. Ah, uh, yes, because you're creating a new space. Is that right? Is that something you you can talk about? Yeah, that's kind of, yeah, one sort of one step forward and half a step back. It's great in that you get all the electrics in, then you put the insulation in, and then the plaster ball goes on, and then the plaster man comes in, and then... Somebody puts a screw through something, which goes through the electrics, which means... Take the plasterboard comes off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And uh, who put the screw in that went through the electrics? Was that part of the uh, uh, the home team or the away team? The away team. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, that means you didn't have to pay for it, presumably. Uh, Well, uh, let's not go there. I can imagine, yeah, managing that kind of project is to... We're we're actually going to be uh, tackling uh, to the side here. We've got uh, what we euphemistically call the box room, which is actually, uh, as well as being full of boxes, it's full of all the tat that we don't want lying around. So our next task is... My task uh, shortly is to go through with, like, a a, a crop. I'm going to put crosses on boxes so they're the ones that are going to go and then we're going to uh, hopefully get someone to help us remove them all and clear some more space because for every time we kind of go oh we've got a bit more space it just gets filled up there's just stuff that comes all the time but there we go dave it's nice to have you uh pl- pleased to have you aboard and uh we should also say hello to mr charles chicky reeves producer engineer front house guy uh, researcher uh scientific mm. um boffin Man, mm-hmm. with many, many... I think the theme behind you is round things. I like round <laughs> things. I like speakers. I like tape machines. Oops, pointing the wrong way. There's tape machines, speakers. Yeah, I like... So they are my mandala of sorts. I'm disappointed that your glasses aren't round as well, because that would complete the theme, really. Yeah, but then I too much John Lennon sort of vibe. So well, you could um, go for the kind of you could go for round ones and have them mimic the uh, the mirrored, but in the shape of Ampeg uh, reels. So they've got those three. How about that? that? Is a good I've never idea. seen that. Somebody That's ought to do that. That's a good idea, though. There's got to be a market for it. You, so. Yeah, to you, perhaps, maybe, that yes, you might yeah. wear at a fancy <laughs> dress party once in your life. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Charles, it's a pleasure to have you aboard. Thank you very much good for joining us. What a week. Um, although it's light on actual fact, there's quite a lot of, what should we say, fiction, hearsay. What, what have we got first? Let's see what's, what's in the list. Fake. Oh, no, no, no. We've got something that isn't fake first. Let's just check. This is the news that the Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon console, which does look absolutely gorgeous, I must say, is going to be up for sale. Uh, and uh, it looks delightful. Uh, I think it's going to be sold. Uh, where is it going to be sold? It's going to be sold through uh, Bonhams uh, on the, through the lens in New York, uh, March 27th. It's going to go out. It's going to be, they expect it's going to reach maybe a six figure sum. And in fact, there's quite a lot of uh, internal shots. Uh, um, if you're into into gear porn, I suppose you could call them. Yes, well, let's not let's not go there. But the meters look lovely, <laughs> all of it. I mean, it's a it's a thing of beauty. I can't. Ha- I wonder if someone's going to buy it. Um, I mean, because ultimately, keeping something that like that alive would be an absolute nightmare. Surely. I mean, I'll start with you, Charles, because you're in the business of using consoles on a daily basis, and you've yep. got a. Is that the Valve TLA over there behind it you? It is. is that- it is the VTC, which so is forty eight. It's 24 channel, uh, 48 channels inline. So, yeah, it's great. I love it. I lo- but that console there is actually something I'd really be in the market for. But I'd have to sell my house and probably my car and <laughs> tape machines. <laughs> I had to sell everything to buy that. And then I would have nothing else. So it would be kind of pointless. But uh, yeah, this uh, TG12345, right? Uh, yeah, what does it say? Uh, yeah, it's the EMI TG12345, which sounded like somebody just sort of decided, oh, let's make up a number. Mark 4. They did. <laughs> they, just, they did. It could have been. Exactly. So <laughs> the next one be the 45678. You know, I don't know. It just, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's very much my kind of thing. I'd love to have something like that. Have you ever that, used uh, an EMI desk or any EMI input kind of channels? I have. I have. Because I, I learned how to do recording uh, in Austin, Texas. And at the time, there was one EMI console there. 
Um, and uh, so I, I had quite a play on that. And then I switched over to the Neve uh, 8068, which is uh, another beautiful console. Yeah, mm. I, I love old consoles like that. In fact, I'm actually trying to get another console for here. Wow. I want to keep that and get another console. I want to get a uh, the big Audient console. Where where it will go, I have no idea. Is that the Audient yeah. one that uh, that doubles with the DAW controller as well? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's the one. Yeah, yeah it's looks... the one I want to get is a five panel, so it's um, it'll be thirty six channels, and then you have the DAW controller, the producer desk, and stuff like that. But you know, but I have to remove most of my keyboards and keep oh, them in storage, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, so much of my work is mixing. I get so much mixing work; it's just good for me to kind of focus on that sort of thing. So. Well, that's, that sounds great. Good luck to you as well. I don't know. Um, Dave, because you, you've been to Abbey Road and stuff, I mean, I, I'm not suggesting you were there at the time this desk was installed, obviously, but, I mean, have you ever had, had the pleasure of the... I mean, it's a sound, isn't it? It's got that kind of... a very specific thing, and obviously Dark Side of the Moon is probably one of the biggest-selling albums, one of the biggest-selling albums, and consistently of all time, so they must be doing something, right? Yeah, yeah. Like Charles says, it's got a sound... Uh, this is yes. I did send this to Chris going, can we? And he sent back a text full of expletives uh, when it got to the six-figure thing. But, I mean, the maintenance on something like this is just going to be insane, isn't it? It's yeah. not actually. I mean, I like it, but it's not my favourite vintage desk. My oh, is a, do tell. It's a Helios. Well, it's a Helios. Oh, I'm yeah. going to have to look that up. Helios. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent. excellent. We used Helios. one at... Um, in fact, Chris Difford, you know, he of Squeeze had a studio called Heliocentric, uh, Let's which have a is look. where what does a Helios look like? Which one of these is it likely to be? Oops, that's the wrong one. Nice not that Excuse one. me, not that one. <laughs> that one? No, uh, it's more like that one. No, it's not that one. Has it got yes, the, that, the, one. That, that exact one? Go back. That one. No, go back. That one. That one. Proper, proper faders. Mm-hmm. It's funny because with some of these desks, uh, the faders are reversed, aren't they? So quite often it's all the way towards you is full. <laughs> and those kind of get a little bit confusing, right? Yeah, certainly in a mix session. No, it's just got... In fact, the desk we used was uh, refurbed by Chris Clifford and Elvis Costello. They paid to have it completely redone. But it was the desk that did... Um, it was the Island Studios desk, so it did all the kind of John Martin, Ooh. Solid Air, the Bob Marley stuff, the Roxy Music stuff, and yeah, there was something about it. It was absolutely beautiful and pristine and had such a wonderful sound. That we were Ooh, like, nice. And it's, using it. I don't know, Mark, how about you? You say you're going to be moving soon. Are you thinking of moving somewhere near you in New York and making space for this beauty? I would love to, but I think one of the most important things about a desk like this is the fact that it is historically and culturally significant. And it worries me whenever anyone puts something like that up for sale, just like, yeah, anyone with the money can have this because then it's like, well, what are they going to, who is going to buy it and what are they going to do with it? If anything, it really should go to a museum or to someone who's going to take care of it or somehow confirm that they're going to take care of it because it's, it's of such importance or, and then there's the part of me that's like, well, it should be used. It should be maintained and used and and it, it gives me a certain amount of anxiety to see things like this for sale. 
Yeah, I know what you mean, because as we know, I mean, during the uh, sort of 80s and 90s, or certainly 90s, all of these kind of, well, as a lot of studios were going out of business, they just got hacked up and turned into separate modules. And I'd imagine EMI modules are, you know, rarer, much rarer than Neve modules. And so for therefore, you know, you probably make more money chopping it up into its constituent parts, racking it up and selling it on. But that's a terrifying thought, I guess, really, isn't it? Um, I don't know if I'd like that. Um does anyone know why the faders were uh, and the, were up, upside down? Okay, what's your story? I've heard various different ones of this. Well, like if you, I've done the Jules Holland show a few times, and that was the first time I'd seen that on a console. And so the reason why they do that is because oftentimes, you know, there'll be someone sitting at the desk with a clipboard, and if they push the, if they just put the clipboard on there and it slides and pushes the faders forward. It's a lot better that it goes quieter than if it goes all the way up. Yeah, that's 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 one thing I heard as well. The other one I heard was particularly for broadcast consoles, because the producers would often be wearing, you know, like shirt and shirt and tie and collar and cufflinks, and so reaching reaching over, if you caught the desk because of the uh, the price of the output transformers of any broadcast facilities, you know, back in the day used to, they, you know, they cost a fortune. It gets to the transmitter, and if you send too much signal, you could blow the output transformers, which would be a, a, a ridiculously enormous cost. So therefore, they put them all the other way around, so that if you slumped forward or reached up to the EQ and you had, or maybe in the 70s when you might have had a caftan, then you would have uh, you would have actually turned the fader up at the end of end of the show. Anybody got anybody got any alternatives to that, Dave? Have you uh, have you heard anything different? No, no, I didn't even know those were the reasons. They're oh. Good reasons, actually. They're very good. See, I learned something today. Excellent. I'm so glad that I'm so glad that you did. But yeah, anyway, so this this is going to be when's it going to be for sale? Let's have a look. It's going to be on sale on. Uh, there is there is a preview day. Yeah. Uh, no, so, it's, it's so going to be... go up mob handed. Yeah, but isn't it in New York? <laughs> it's oh, going to yeah. be in New York. Uh, it's basically... Oh, no, it's Knightsbridge. Knightsbridge. It's viewable to the public at Bonham's Knightsbridge from March the 19th until the sale. So uh, it's not New York at all. Okay. Oh, maybe it's being re- remotely uh, auctioned. Does that sound... Is that a thing? Uh, that it, gives an yeah. indication that it's going to hit its figures, doesn't it? Yeah. You've got phone yeah. bidding and stuff going on. It's like, whoa. Anyone going to make a guess? At how much? Yeah. Um, I would say, I don't think it'd be high into the six figures. I think it'll be in the probably 400,000 range. Whoa. Yeah, and it'll, do you think it'll go, go on? Uh, do you think you can take your guess? 400K from uh, Chicky? About 200, I'd, 200. I'd guess that. Mark? I I couldn't possibly imagine. I, I have no idea. I've know. never even looked at those values. It'll it'll be it'll be something. whatever whatever Charles said. That's what I said. Yeah, four hundred k. That is a lot. I mean, I can't imagine. Uh, I can't imagine how. Uh, I I can uh, well I can imagine. It's probably going to be. But I would imagine it's going to be bought by a really wealthy Pink Floyd fan. I would think maybe two. Who's also a musician. Oh, let's hope so. Yeah, that would be yeah. that would be nice. That's the ideal scenario, and it'll be used every day and uh, loved and carry on for another century. That would be awesome. Let's let's hope for that. We'll 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 stick with that, and that's a good hope. Right. Um. Let's see. What's another uh, another one? I just need. Am I streaming? Yes, I am. Gosh, I managed to do something right. So, uh, where's my notes? Here we go. So, oh yeah, here we go. Now this is uh, this is part of a two part kind of subject I and mean, there's no pictures here but obviously uh it can't have escaped you that uh 
Berenger have been talking up the possibility of doing uh, a, a, some form of um, Minimoog clone at an affordable price, uh, which is one thing. And there's all sorts. I mean, it's just I, I believe it's just talk at the moment, so it's kind of hard to know exactly <laughs> what. But it's what's been very interesting about this is the public's reaction, or at least the reaction via comments, which is perhaps not the public. Um, and uh, I'm curious to know what we a what we think about this as a concept. I mean. Generally, I guess anybody could be doing this, I suppose. But the fact that it's Behringer may have a, a, an extra kind of dimension to it. Um, Dave, you bought the latest Model D, you know, the the, the reissue. You've got one there. Uh, obviously, the physicality of the instrument is a main thing. Intrinsically, is there any kind of do you have any issue with somebody making something affordable so that they would get access to this kind of thing? You know, I mean, cost. Obviously, it's going to be cheap. It's not going to be built in to anything like the same standard one would imagine in hardware. But if the electronics are ultimately the same, yeah, I'm not sure. I yes, blimey, Mark and myself know quite a bit about this subject. Um, <laughs> I, I I waver between thinking that maybe Yuli Berenger is uh, the ultimate troll or whether he's a borderline marketing genius probably a mixture of both maybe but uh yeah there are all sorts of the, the the way it was expressed is that actually it's not a problem to do it now that may be the case technically although there is a beauty in older mini modes where you got you know capacitor leakage and all sorts of things that happen internally yeah and one of the great things about the mini is the way the signal is overdriven due to the error that we've talked about a million times. Uh, but if you want to make something look like a Mini, there are inherent difficulties with that now because Moog Inc. have made a hardware Mini. So over here, it's known as passing off. You can't pass off a product as being the same as somebody else's. I think in America, it's known as trade dress, but Mark knows more Mark will know more about that than me so this idea that you know the components only cost 200 quid therefore we can do it for 220 pounds is a bit odd in my head but you know yeah I mean you know blimey we did us we did the soft you know a software clone at the time when obviously it wasn't being manufactured in hardware so it would be uh, a of me to have any issue with somebody else doing it yeah, no, that's an interesting point. I, I'm before I, I, I'll get your other input, but I've got some thoughts on the subject as well. I don't know, Mark. Obviously, you've got a Moog there. I don't. Is yours an original or is yours a, a yes? No, no. Yeah, it's it's an original. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. This is an interesting point because I have I've been sort of immersed in the whole Moog situation for a number of years now, and. Sure. It's it's interesting because for so many decades, anyone could have made a mini Moog. Anyone could have uh, because if there were any patents that applied to the mini Moog, they were long forgotten. Um, Moog music folded in, you know, like really the late 80s, but 93 or so completely. So like it was open game. Anyone could technically do it. And some people did. There's the Donnie Moog thing and everything. But it's not owned. There's no such thing as owning a product that no one has any claim to. So when I saw Yuli's comments, it was like, well, that's kind of true, or it was true for many years. But like Dave said, the minute someone has a product, 
is the minute where you you just can't do it. You're not you're not legally allowed to create a product that looks exactly like someone else's product. But an interesting point about this is the new Moog music didn't have any products that look like the Mini Moog, and they really wanted to claim ownership over what they called the trade dress of the Mo- uh, Mini Moog for reasons that were associated. Well, who even knows? Because the new Moog music is not related to the old Moog music. The new Moog music is Bob's company, Big Briar. So they never had made a Mini Moog. And yet there was this desire to protect the Mini Moog design that was impossible. They own the trademark, but they, you know, there's no, there's no such thing as copywriting a, a synth design. You can only patent things. So for years, I, I've thought that, you know, like Dave's product or Arturia's product that looks like a Mini Moog, don't they have the trade dress for the Mini Moog? I mean, and, and no one really talks about, okay, is it that software, something that looks like something in software is different than something that looks like something in hardware? Oh, and I don't know the legal answer to that. So, you know, maybe <laughs> Arturia could have possibly sued Moog Music for their hardware mini mode because it looked just like a product that they've been selling for many years now. But uh, yeah, but Yuli is wrong. He can't just make a mini mode that looks like a mini mode or Moog music very legally can say, sorry, dude, and sue. But doesn't that but, rely on the fact it being a kind of like for like look? So, you know, the keyboard, the flip up and everything. I mean, what if it's just a desktop, right. you know, and there's no, there's none of the other bits on it. Is that, I, I mean, that's the thing I'm not sure about. Yeah. The technology. The lawyers super rich. Yeah. Lawyers get rich. <laughs> the technology is not protected. There's no way to claim a design that was made and owned by another company in the past as your own. Even if you're doing it, it's not even your legal design. Wow. And so I would say that that technology, uh, you can't repatent it. So it's it's pretty much okay. in the public domain. Right. It's interesting. I mean... I don't know what you think, Charles. I mean, again, this is, you know, more of along the same thing. But the, as far as I can tell, the reaction seems to have been split into thirds. The first one is, hey, cool, I'll buy one. I could never afford the real thing. So, you know, if it sounds anywhere near as good, then great. You know, I'll, I'll have a go with it. I mean, and, and clearly uh, Behringer are very uh, adept at economies of scale and, and creating stuff that would be much more affordable. Well, that's, that's undeniable, and that's obviously the intent. Second third are... Um, hold on a minute, why don't you just make something else? I mean, haven't we had enough of this? You know, surely, you know, put all of that effort into making something kind of different and more, uh, you know, more reliable, not more reliable, but just, you know, something else, you know, not the, not the, the Minimo, you know, we've, we've so had like enough what they of it. they did with DeepMind and the Juno 106. Yeah, D- it, it, inspi- right. inspired by, but only very loosely in, in the end. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, um, so I, I have... He said it was like 200 pounds or dollars or whatever for the parts. Right. In the same way, human beings are made up of what? They say $86 worth of parts. You put them together. <laughs> but do you have a human being? No, water. you don't. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, exactly. A lot of water. Um, but, but like for instance, like I really, like I'm really into watches. Like I collect watches. And the difference between a watch that is – put together with nice materials and everything and gone through an assembly line versus a Rolex, which is made by hand is there's quite a difference there. 
I mean, sure. I, I, like I, I have these German preamps from the 1950s, and they they sound beautiful. The V72s and stuff, uh, they sound beautiful, and they're all you open them up, they're all handmade. They have a very uh, reliable and unique sound to them. And yeah, there are great preamps that come out now that you can't really tell a difference between the two of them. But you do a whole album's worth of tracking through all these other these different preamps and you start seeing differences the the cumulative effect i think the same thing is true for like synths you know yeah you can get these parts and you can make them all class a parts but i i don't think that doing a quick assembly line manufacture of them is necessarily going to make something that, ah yeah no absolutely because you know, courtesy of mark um i got to see the the moog factory when when we were in his town <laughs> and uh and it was quite a transformative experience just seeing how they how they build everything by hand, how they put everything together, and how they spend all this time doing like a burn-in phase for, for their keyboards and how they how they obviously revere what they're doing. I, I think I think, yeah, whatever politics or something with the company, and I know it's a it's a newer company taking on an older company, but Still, I think there's there's a lot of love that goes into what they're making, and I think I think Yuli Berenger is is a marketing genius. Is there love in, into what he makes? Eh, I don't know. It's kind of hard I'm, to I'm say. I'm sure there must there must be at some point. I mean, and we know that you know that, that he's been into synthesizers. So there's a per, you know, in as much as the guy at the top of such a big tree can be involved at the bottom, where it's just you know get the factory ready to make the things. I mean, yeah, I think that maybe the intent there's a, there's a similar intent. I mean, it's curious what you say. I mean, the build quality. Yeah, I mean. Of course, it won't have the same build quality as something that's hand-built with real wood and, you know, thick metal and all of those things. But having said that, if it's going to be, you know, as it, somewhere above the 200 bucks mark or 200 pounds mark, then no, I, you can't expect that. And that's fine. As long as you know what you're getting, then, then you know, yeah. you can't really complain about the build quality, which has been something that's sort of a common thread through a lot of the Behringer stuff, the stuff that they actually build that, you know, is is not like anything else and is their own thing. You know, they, they make yeah. it as affordable as possible so that people can buy it and they can make money, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're not, you're not expecting to get mil-spec stuff. I mean, you would, you would be expecting to pay more for it, wouldn't you? Right. I, I very much agree with that. Like, for instance, what they did with, the, with DeepMind, I think is, is quite brilliant. And, you know, they're, they're sort of, they're inspired by the, the 106. And the 106... I mean, I love my 106, but it's not like it's particularly well made. You know, it, you have to replace the chips on it, and you know, just yeah. things break on it all the time. You know, it. I think it's it's good they made sort of a new, affordable, better function version of that. Um, in the same way, like if someone wants to, you know, copy, you know, a Seiko watch. Here I'm going to watch this again. But if someone wants to copy a Seiko watch or something like that, okay, fine. You know, it'll probably be about the same. But copying Rolex, it's it's a very different beast. And it's not just because of build quality. It's something about the source spirit that goes into the way that thing is made. Mm. I know it's very metaphysical, but that's how I feel about a lot of gear. Because I know people who have the same gear that I have, same mics, same preamps, everything. And for some reason, what they record does not sound anything like how I would record. And that's just there's just this thing about the love that goes into the way things are made and and even the experience in the no, studio. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that it's down to, you know... The, there's a mass production market, and the idea with this is that it's not going to be going out to the people who are nearly there and have nearly saved up for their mini Moog. They're not going to be interested in this. It's a very different part of the market. So I think right. that's the distinction that probably you know is 
needs to be taken into consideration. But it's an interesting, you know, nothing official has been announced. There's no pictures. There's no nothing. There's this talk. And and as a result, we're getting all of this. Uh, we're talking about it. And it's set the internet to a storm, which is kind of, I think, something, you know, I think Uli's official title <laughs> is, ch- is Chief Disruptor, you know. And so, job done. Even if, I've, I have another theory. I have a theory is that it won't happen. And what he's going to do is say, actually, on reflection, we don't want to kind of do this because out of respect to the Moog legacy, Bob's work, etc. But what we have got is this synth. Do you want to buy this instead? And, right. and, and, you know, he gets to be magnanimous and, you know, people kind of think, oh, well, you know, that's reasonable. And also there's another synth, which is, is something new and something different, you know, so that either option is going to result in a good result. For, for on subside, obviously mostly for the Behringer Corporation because that's what they're in business to do. But I just wonder if there's a, an element of that. It's just you know, make a lot of sound, oh. get some pr- publicity. I don't know what do you think, Dave? Well, he did the same, didn't he, with uh, Odyssey? Yeah, a couple that's of years what I was ago. Fact, say. I, I remember it so clearly because it was just before Christmas, and we were kind of trying to, you know, trying to down tools to get a break, and all of a sudden it was like. And my email was just, bam, what do you think of this? Bam, what do you think of this? And I was just like, oh, great, over Christmas. So I spent most of that Christmas fielding things going, well, it's just, there's just a JPEG, you know. And it's a great way, like you say, you know, maybe uh, it it may not happen. But either way, everyone's talking about it. Everyone's got an opinion in some way. Also, I think on the, you know, the trade dress side of things, it's a very difficult thing with something like a mini in that, you know, when I do these lectures to these A-level music tech students or, you know, um, degree people, uh, I take the mini Moog along as an example of something that dictated everything that came thereafter in terms yeah. of workflow and stuff, you know, and the Prophet 5's, you know, incredibly close with the wood and the layout and, the you know, where the mod section is and all that kind of stuff so my first thought was oh maybe it'll just stick a four stage envelope on it and it'll be plastic instead of wood and there won't be switches there'll be knobs and i mean you know there's a million ways around these things but yeah the point is everybody's talking about it yeah so job done in many ways right i think it's time for a word from our sponsor in terms of more uh commerciality let's uh let's keep keep the flag flying because uh, obviously Isotope are sponsors of the show and we very much appreciate it and uh, we're going to talk to you about Isotope Neutron. This is the plugin. It's like a suite of plugins that allows you to identify the kinds of tracks that are in your mixes. Suggest potential processing but also and this is another thing this is using the mix, the mix assistant it allows you to visualize potential su- uh, frequency cl- clashes using the masking meter which is a genius idea really so you can as well as here you can see perhaps stuff that you couldn't hear and it's like this is muddy and i don't know why because you might end up cutting things you didn't know visualize identify the collisions tweak them out more forensically more surgically create more space in your mix it's kind of like a kind of another set of monitors, but without, but using your eyes rather than your ears, which is an interesting concept. So it's well worth checking out. I know uh, several of the panel have said they've actually been really impressed with the results, just kind of using it as a starting point for a mix and then obviously working on it, putting your own personality on it. Yes, 
you can download it for free uh, for a free trial isotope.com forward slash neutron and uh, well worth checking out and we do actually suggest uh, that you do that and in fact we've got a competition last week we asked you to uh, tweet the various hashtags I forget what it was see your mix and neutron and we have a winner uh, la- last week's winner is someone called Matt Nids this is a, a Twitter competition it's at Matt Nids so M-N-N M-A-T-N-I-D-S. If you want to get in touch, Matnidge, you have won uh, a full copy of Isotope Neutron. And, of course, we've got another competition this week where we're giving away yet another copy thanks to Isotope. And we want – this is a Twitter competition where you need to tweet the hashtag expert audio. that's one word, and the hashtag Neutron to at Sonic State and at Isotope Inc. So the hashtag expert audio, one word, the hashtag Neutron, N-E-U. T-R-O-N to at Sonic State that Isotope Inc. And once again, we thank them very much for their sponsors. Now, continuing the theme, it's it's funny, isn't it? We you know when you get these kind of large uh, bereft pieces of news, uh, we're bereft of news, then we end up uh, with loads of synth talk, which is great. Charles, if I could just ask you, say, I think have you got a USB audio interface on your uh, audio system? I do because it's doing that circular. It might need replugging because it's starting to crackle. That's something that you sometimes get when uh, when the bus is. So you might need to just plug pull it and pull, plug it back in. But okay, if you don't mind handling that, I'll move on to the next topic and you can jump in when you're ready. Right, there's. I, I'm going to call this uh, this this episode "Attack of the Clones" because not only have we got the uh, the the Moog the the, the Moog D clone, we've also got. Deckard's Dream, which is a CS80 clone. I love the name, actually. I think that's a really nice touch. This is, uh, a, again, a mock-up of a CS80 clone, a rack mount. It's going to be available in kit form or uh, or ready, um, ready-made. ready And it's kind of... Um, it's made by a chap called, now if I get his name right, Roman Filipov, who was involved in Sputnik Modular. They used to make kind of bookless stuff. And uh, it was... Bookler uh, Eurac modules, and so this is something that he's proposing, and I think it's going to be about a thousand bucks for all the hardware, PCBs. Then you'd have to build your own things. Going to have our, you know, all of the other things that that the Moog has, that the CS80 has. I don't think it's got the ring mod, and I don't think it's got. Uh, there's another thing. Uh, was there a spring reverb? Somebody said there was. There, I think there was a spring reverb no. on the CS80. No, no, there wasn't. I didn't think so either. Uh, but eight voice and talking about introducing uh, MPE instead of aftertouch. So you have MIDI MPE. So you have the same kind of vibe. So you have uh, polyphonic aftertouch. Eight voices. Uh, let's see if we, I've got some more pictures of it here. Let's just have a look. And it's going to be but five about five grand fully made. Now again, this sort of comes again in the the kind of clone thing. It seems like that that's that's what's happening. The CS80, as we know, is a legendary synth, uh, which is, in my opinion, it's the it's down to the physicality of it, like the Jupiter Eight. You know, the the boutique doesn't quite work because it's a tiny little thing. The real Jupiter Eight is massive, impressive, physical. Same with the CS80. However, massively impractical. I mean, you've got a CS80, Dave, and most of the time it seems to be being repaired. Right? It's not today. So, I mean, would this if you were using CS80 sounds a lot in a point, you know, at a point where you you needed to rely on it, would this be something you would consider for for I don't know touring or you know studio work when you didn't want to have to switch it on and go oh there goes another voice or whatever? Yeah, you wouldn't want to take a CS80 on the road. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> just, and they did just the <laughs> shipping did. alone. That's what I find amazing. I used to, you know, I borrowed one when they were worth next to nothing at a local. Rockstar was kind of selling a load of stuff and he was like oh just take it and see what you think of it and I remember moving it around you know just me 
lugging it with the two handles and kind of just sort of throwing it on the sofa and playing with it for hours. Uh, and in the end, in fact, I was in a band at the time, I was drumming and the key, I kind of threw it under the keyboard player and he just went, there's no way I'm taking this out gigging and he bought a JX3P instead. But, uh, so yes, yes I would. I, as I understand it, there's no ring mod, which is a very, very special it, ring mod. Yeah, absolutely, mind. yeah. I think it's actually the best ring mod that's ever existed. I'm sure there's millions of people who disagree with that. But I understand that he's going to make that in a separate uh, rack mount. There's no ribbon controller, which is a, a, a you know an important part of it, a very important part of it actually, because you know nothing really happened after that. I remember when they brought the GX series, um, the GS one out, and that was my first question to a certain Dave Bristow. It's like, well, what, why, why? And he said, everybody's asking the same question. Uh, but yeah, in theory, there is one thing. It's quite, the CS is a really fascinating instrument, and I could talk about it all day, and I'll try and be brief. In essence, in isolation, the synth engine itself is not particularly remarkable. The filters don't self-oscillate. You know, uh, all right, you've got the band pass, uh, the high pass and the low pass and whatnot. And there's a lot that you can do with it, but in isolation, it's, it's kind of like, mm, yeah, okay. But when you've got the dual layers and the ability to kind of detune and you've got the ring mod and you've got the expressivity of that keyboard, that keyboard is very, very special. It, there's something, and I'm not a complete fanatic about it because, so we've got an 80 and a 60 and a 60 is very much like a kind of traditional synthy type keyboard, which is great for people like me who you know, just don't get to play as much as I should and my finger muscles aren't amazing anymore. And the 80, you know, there are certain things I love playing on the 80 and the ability to pick out the individual notes with the poly aftertouch and stuff like that and set stuff really intricately. But it's not something that I would whiz along with, whereas the 60 is a very, is a different kind of beast. And they say a 60 is half an 80, but it is not. It is much less than half an 80. So there are all those... I'm going to do a video on the 80, but I want to do it in conjunction with Kent, the guy who fixes ours, because there are so many myths that's grown up around the 80, for example, wooden keys. There aren't wooden keys, but the keys have this really long throw. I mean, they're, you know, they are really, really long. Somewhere I've got one. Um, and it's that weight, even though it's not wooden, it's the weight and the way it's balanced. There's something about it. So really, the 80 is... One of those synths that it is more, much more than its component parts, it grows into just this bloody great behemoth. Mm. And it is a joy. It is an absolute joy. And I love it for chordal work and, uh, yeah, even it's, it's, effects. It's, it's, it's sort of the physicality. But again, you know, would you pay that kind of 20K premium or whatever it is now uh, and uh, to, to have that extra... I I really wrestled long and hard, and that's an interesting thing you say about the name of this, Deckard's Dream, because I spent weeks, and if, you, if you've ever been on the phone to Kent, you'll understand that weeks is like one phone call, um, on the phone to <laughs> Kent, kind of going, look, I really, I, I would love an 80, but I don't want to spend that amount of money and just sound like Frank uh, Vangelis. 
you know so we were trying to find all of these other albums and tracks that used an 80 that i could kind of go oh okay yeah yeah i don't necessarily have to sound like that so the naming of this was quite interesting in this. yeah well Just, it, yeah De for those perhaps you haven't got it deckard's dream obviously deckard uh, deckard was the character in blade runner and vangelis uh legendarily did the soundtrack to blade runner with uh a lot of cs80 mark yes <laughs> this is the part where I say the thing that the internet internet hates. But, you know, we see a lot of these clone ideas coming up. And when you make a clone, the question is, why make the clone? And I think there are two answers to that. One of them is so that you can bring this wonderful, amazing instrument back to the masses. But I think the other answer to the question is often to give consumers something that will give them the feeling that they're playing this iconic thing. And I think so often that second answer becomes the answer. And what consumers and a lot of musicians typically seem to respond to is like, well, yeah, it's close enough, right? I mean, it, it's kind of, it's, it doesn't have to be, I mean, you're such a purist, you know, blah, blah, blah. But really I say, unless you can provide the experience of the mini Moog or the CS80, you're not actually playing a CS80, and it's not a CS80, and it because the CS80s uh, like the way that it's designed. A lot of the things that you know Dave touched on, you are not going to get the experience or even the sound of the CS80 from this device. I'll tell you right now because there's so much that goes into where the lever le the lever placement is and how those weird paddle switches behave. And then on top of it is you're not actually, not only do you have tiny little sliders, but they're, they're digital. I mean, they have to be for there to be presets. And so you've just like totally cut off what generates the pleasing character of the CS80 by basically just making a standard current synthesizer. And I think people equivalent, like they equal functionality with what defines a synthesizer and like again what dave said having you know two layered oscillators a high pass and a low pass and the unique envelope uh application of the filter and whatever yeah you can have that but unless it's done in the way that the cs80 was done it's not going to sound like the cs80 enough for it to be an authentic reproduction and some people might say, well, so what? But then I'd say, well, if you can say so what to that, why not just buy another synthesizer that's maybe more powerful? Ah, Dave is now holding up uh, a large key. That's the length wow. of the key. That's, wow. a, that's a lot. Where's the pivot point on that? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, that's a lot of leverage right there. Wow, well, that's actually, awesome. It's kind of about here, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's stunning. And there are all sorts of sensors along... Uh, to give you the aftertouch. Uh, in fact, it's very, very, very well designed as a key bed because you can go in and kind of tweak stuff so that it kind of feels a little bit better for you. Not necessarily the weighted, the weighted aspect of it, but the aftertouch as well as the controls. Interesting. But there's an interesting thing that I've... Uh, you know, Kent, Kent is obviously the kind of the guru on this, but and he thought that he, he told me years ago that um, actually, Yamaha lost money on these. It was more a case of 
announcing that we are really serious about synthesis and we have arrived and this is the best job we can do. Yeah, no, interesting. Uh, Charles, have you ever ever owned? I mean, I'm guessing with some of the artists you've worked with, they must have had one lying around the place at some point. Yeah, in the States. Um, not here, not in the UK. But there's three things I'd like to say about this. First thing is, I will probably buy one. Okay. You know, I, just because, just because, you know, I, I do love the, the sound of the CS80. Uh, second thing is, you know, Deckard's dream in the movie was about a unicorn. And it may be, I had this feeling that this may not actually end up existing. Kind of like a unicorn. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, uh, and th that maybe the name is actually uh, a giveaway. But then the other aspect is that uh, they mentioned on the on the site that Johan Johansson was one of the first people that it's going to go to because he's working on a soundtrack. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what soundtrack he's working on. So I guess that it's telling us that the new Blade Runner soundtrack will sound at least somewhat reminiscent of the old one. Or if he's just re recreating certain things to create stingers and cues and stuff, then... Fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but no. yeah, I, I want one of these. I do want one. I love the CS. I really do. So, well, there you go. Can't say further. I mean, going back to that concept of this, of this creating an image. This is something that I, I I discovered when I was doing this, the Roland System Eight review, which is a pure digital synthesizer. It's got lots of shortcomings. Its the build quality is not questionable, but you know, perhaps you'd expect it to be s more stocky for the for the money that you're paying. But as an instrument and as an experience, as a playing thing to play, it just works, you know, in the same way that many of these synthesizers become classics because they have a thing about them that you can just kind of put your hands on it and interact with it in a way that is creatively inspiring. And, you know, that's that's something that certainly that instrument, you know, and there are instruments that do that. And I usually try and call them out when I, I but I guess that's a personal thing as well. You know, I mean, many people know that I feel the same way about the Erebus. It's just a sort of, you touch it and it, it does things that you just go, yeah, I like that. I feel good about it. But there's no interface. It's not like there's no keyboard, there's no controllers, there's nothing. But some things have this slightly, it's, it's an intangible thing, which must be a combination of design choices, obviously electronics and things that they do that don't sound like anything else. And the, 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 the what they call the control law, the way that the parameters respond. All of these things have something, you know, important. And I think that's, that's the probably one of the magic ingredients. Obviously, with something like as complex as the CS80, you know, there are a lot of things where those go to affect the final experience. I mean, I remember, I don't know if I've told this story once, I, w I used to work uh, at Real World um, as a freelance sound designer when they were doing their uh, art CD-ROMs, you know, where it was all kind of, uh, there was Eve and uh, Ovo, I think it was, I can't remember the name of them now. And uh, there was at one point where we just got the keys to the storage and we just went and wandered around to see if there was anything in there that might kind of, you know, inspire us to kind of make some sounds. And there was a CS80 there. And I went, yeah, we'll have that. Can we have that in uh, in the room, right? And so I had it and I started to use it a little bit and I put it through. I remember it was the Eventide H, H3000. Yeah. And I got this sort of looping kind of, uh, pad that was just going around and it just created this amazing atmosphere and I remember because Peter was around the place and he wandered in and he just sort of went oh you've been using that and the next day it was gone you know <laughs> it's like it's like and obviously he just gone yeah I must uh, I must yeah I, I, I can use that and you know but it it it's the, it's a testament to the sort of physicality and you see something like that you just go oh, yeah and the memory of what that felt like when you were sort of doing it and all of those things um, but anyway, I wish them luck, and I hope it does uh, work and, and, out. 
Yeah. And actually, yeah, I mean, it, I'm in no way dissing this guy's work. Uh, by all accounts, the Bookler stuff is amazing that he's done. In fact, I hear his easel stuff is better than the latest easel. So everything I say, uh, you just temper it with, I have a huge amount of respect for this guy's work. Yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, we've got more. I mean, there just seems to be a ton of it. There's also this, uh, did anyone see this uh, ARP 2600? This is the uh, uh, samples from Mars, Mars for uh, 2600 from Mars, which is uh, an early uh, 2600 with the, the Moog ladder type filter. You get what, uh, I don't know, 4,000 plus samples, uh, all sorts of, lots and lots of different things. And again, you know, this is in no way, you know, it's not, you're not getting the interface, you're getting a flavour of the whole thing. And some of the demos sound pretty good, actually. I won't play them because I've got a weird thing with my audio interface. You can check this up, the story on the site. But it, 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 it I guess it, it kind of takes us into this sort of common thread is you know i know mark you've got a 2600 have you I've, I've often seen it in the background is that right yes yes i mean many people say it's amongst those kind of top say top five top ten classic synthesizers i mean i'm guessing you've got one so you would probably agree with that but what i mean because well, it's not it's not an easy thing to get your head around it does take a little bit of you know almost training to understand how the hell it works because i could never figure it out it, it's a it's a weird interface, and uh, it does take a while. But yeah, it is, and I think it's one of those things. There were so few years where synthesizers were made, like the ARP twenty six hundred was made, and like the Mini Moog was made, in that true like discrete layout of components that they have a, a certain character that is really desirable. I mean, that's pretty much everything I do is sort of chasing that character. And the R2600, once you sort of get your head around it, it suddenly, it kind of rewires you to think in its way, which is true, I think, for a lot of synthesizers, but there's something weird about how sort of uh, impenetrable the interface is at first and then how easy it becomes later. It's the same thing with the Odyssey. But yeah, I mean, it is a truly desirable synthesizer. I would say, like, I don't know... It's capable of some unique timbral situations, but I don't know that sampling those situations really captures, you know, because a lot of them are, I, I once did this ridiculous video, a joke video, where I basically uh, let the ARP 2600 trigger itself and came up with a whole bunch of really obnoxious sounds. But the truth of the matter is, there's there's an experience that goes along with the 2600 that makes it, it desirable. And I'm not so sure that its timbre on its own is really that remarkable, except for the character that it has. Although I will say I did listen to the sample, like the the the, the examples on that site, and they sound really, really cool. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting device. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's a fair point. I mean, like I say, I don't know too much. I, I, I've had, I've not been in a situation where I've gone, yeah, I'll use that and then used it. And a because I, I don't have one, and b because you know I'm being paid by the hour generally, and people don't want me to spend those hours learning how synthesizer works. <laughs> they want the other stuff that I do rather than that, you know. But I know, uh, Chicky, are you kind of uh, have you got one? No, I don't. I do. I use the Arturia one, which I do love. I think it's. A, as far as software software emulations go, I think it's quite good, but um, but no, I, I I don't have one. Um, the studio I worked in before 
uh, in two locations before this, uh, there was a guy who shared a space with us, and he had one in there. And uh, uh, it sounded beautiful. It was just a beautiful machine. But I, I've not been able to get a hold of one. So Yeah, there was a period yeah. where they were affordable, and then they became suddenly very unaffordable. But that raises an interesting question, Dave, because, I mean, if you think, if you could, you know, let's say not a clone, but just a, a unique software instrument of some kind, you still have to get inside that and figure out where all the, the nooks and crannies are. I mean, is there any difference really to that experience? Because we're kind of rather romanticizing this kind of relationship with the hardware. Is it possible? Is it not possible to have that relationship with software instruments as well? You know, whatever they may be. Yeah, I think I think you can. Uh, I'm probably in a minority here, but yes, I think you can. Uh, I have to develop that relationship with what we do before. It's allowed to go out the door, and I, I, I and you do you can do that either via and it's quite it, it, I'm going to be slightly controversial here. There is a huge difference between a sample library and something that has been DSP coded in DSP. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that sure. is really detailed and really almost disgustingly difficult uh, if you want to do it well. And you know, there are, I think I've said it before, there are a handful of people in the world that I go, yep, yep, you're good, yep, you're good. And that's not the same for a sample library. However, anyone who, how many samples did you say? It's a had? lot. It's like several thousand. Uh, I'd yeah, be- I'd have real great difficulty coming up with several thousand what I would term as musically usable samples from a 2600. And that's one of the reasons why I love it, because I... I, I I semi-know it inside out. Uh, we've done a lot of research on the schematics and various and the, and the workflow and the components. And uh, it's it's a bit like, it's, in some ways it reminds me of like the AKS or something like that, that actually the more you begin to understand it, the less you get out of it because those happy accidents <laughs> stop occurring <laughs> and you fall into a trap of, oh, I'm just going to do this with this and that and that with that and right also with the 2600 there were so many versions of this that were made you know the different filters the different front panels there's all sorts i believe right at the beginning they kind of just used stuff they had lying around i mean i did talk to perlman about all of this at great length and he didn't dispute that but you know stuff Oh, we got loads of those kicking around from this project. Oh, so we'll just put those in there, and that'll do for that revision. It's or like that the, uh, the 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 twentieth century version of the D beam, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah, we got yeah. a shed we'll of those. Just put that in there, and yeah, we'll just still got half a warehouse full. Yeah. <laughs> and I like that because that encapsulated the vibe of the time. It was like you know these, as I said. I alluded to in the whole Bright Sparks thing, there was really no industry when all of this was starting. There were people going, you know what, maybe if we try this, this might work. And that gets back to the whole man in shed just tinkering and going, well, is it going to work? They're they're not led by, you know, bean counters or they're just driven to do these things in the same way that an artist is driven to create a piece of music or a piece of art. And that, for me, is what makes... I think that translates, in many cases, to make an instrument special and something that you either connect with or go, whoa, 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 I have no relationship with that, so 
I'll just move on to something else. But, you know, it's certainly up there with the Mini Moog and the 80 and uh, various other synths, definitely, mm. definitely. I know, uh, Charles, do you, I mean, that, coming back to that kind of notion of, of software being, uh, you know, equally as valid as, a, as an instrument and being able to find the nooks and crannies, I mean, you have a different relationship with the interface, obviously, because you're using a single point, generally speaking, a mouse or a, a, a trackpad, maybe a controller, so harder to find. Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm you know, one of the things that I, I like about like hardware analog synths, and this may be one reason why I may not do the System Eight is um, like especially with the, you know like my Oberheim and the my Roland stuff and and everything. It's um, there's a certain uh, like randomness, a little chaotic thing that just sort of goes through the electronics and. That's and you get like these weird interactions sometimes within the machines that you just I don't think you can you cannot in, in the computing world there's no such thing as random there's the appearance of randomness but there's not there's no such thing as actually random and so they um, I, I just don't think that can be accomplished with software what you can do with software is get a reliable version that will always do what you want it to do as opposed to when I turn on my when i turn i turned on my juno 106 the other day and you know it's uh i don't even know what's going on it just suddenly all the sounds sound completely different they all sound slightly washy and everything and probably the battery's going out but you know what i got some really cool sounds of it and i record them because i i know there's no way i could recreate those sounds whereas software gives you a very reliable it will never stray from the path kind of sound yes but i would say your journey through the patch creation on software is probably the interesting bit where you end up and go i'll save that is probably not all the good bits that happened before when you started and ended up there and same yeah. with any synthesizer as well i suppose i know mark i mean are you you know famously you you love old digital samplers as well but you know in terms of software i mean there must be the occasion where you feel the the you know inspiration hits you you haven't got your synths with you you've got your laptop you've got maybe something on there so you you throw something down whatever does it matter what that instrument is or would you reach for anything i mean and if so are there times when you think you can get inside that software to create something that has a meaning for you in the morning when you think oh was that any good no yes <laughs> i i think it's certainly possible and for so many years i was really anti software primarily because of my own personal experience because you know, we all remember what software synthesizers were like when they first came out. You were, it was kind of like you you wanted them to work. So you kind of gave them, you know, some credit where there wasn't credit due. It's like, I can make, I can, you know, I can engage in synthesis on a computer now. But of course, it was not a pleasant interface nor a pleasant experience ultimately. It was more like a novelty, like, look, I can, I can do this on the computer. And for many years, I sort of carried that sort of prejudice with me. But these days, and this is something that I, I thought of in regard to the CS80 clone, it's kind of like, well, wouldn't this, if you're going to do presets and you're going to you know, have that sort of integration, why not just do this in software where you might be able to you know, generate, do much more for much less. And it's a weird thing for me to be actually saying, why are you even doing this in hardware? Why not do it in software? But I still, probably because all of my computers are now a thousand years old and <laughs> I I don't know what to do because I'm, I'm a massive Mac user 
And now I don't really have the Mac love I used to have because, I mean, Mac's kind of ditching their whole computer concept for something they're planning in the future, you know. And I, so I, I kind of feel trapped. It's like, do I buy a computer so that I can make use of all of this great software that's out there? Because it's true. Uh, for example, I do have like Core Gadget because Core gave me Core Gadget, and I use it a lot because it's so immediate on the iPad. I just turn it on; it's there. I can synthesize. I can grab a great, you know, I can program a great drum pattern super quickly with my hands. It's right there, and I do appreciate that. But sitting down at my like desktop to engage in something like that is physically an unpleasant experience for me. I'm like, oh, I just want to like physically interact with an object to do the stuff. So while I greatly appreciate, I have much more appreciation for software, it's still not the way, not the most ideal way for me to be creative. Hmm. No, that's a fair point. Dave, I saw you raise your hand there. Yeah, I think there's a very clear demarcation in a lot of cases. There is a big difference between performance and composition. And I think that software really, really comes alive when you are a composer because there are so many times where I've gone and done a live or you know done a, a live thing with a synth and I've done a little bit of rehearsal and whatnot and then all of us ah oh, damn you know what I didn't do that thing and I didn't do this thing and whatnot because everything's kind of there in front of me but whereas that when you know, I'm actually writing with an artist or composing stuff of my own I can really get detailed and actually in a lot of cases the hardware may be the starting point. It may be a sound or something that I've come up with that inspires me that I'll then go to the software and go, now I can put this within my door. I can spend time recording the part and making sure that that's all nicely over-quantized. <laughs> but then mm -hmm. I can go in and deal with all the automation stuff to make stuff slightly, you know, so that it's not this cycling eight-bar loop that remains static. So I think in a lot of cases, you know, if you're a really adept performer, hardware, yes, we all love the tactile interface. There's, you know, that's beyond doubt. But when it comes to real detailed work where you've got the star turnover, you're going, yeah, I don't know, that phase isn't quite right on that. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to walk over to your 55 and, um, I've screwed it up. I've screwed it up and they're going you've lost it you've lost the vibe whereas actually in software you can get it back that's a very there. interesting point that's an interesting point. I mean, I'd say perhaps that's yeah whether it's arrangement or composing that definitely makes sense I mean because obviously when you're interacting with hardware it's a very free kind of synaptic journey from your head to your hands to the to the sound in software there's this sort of little part of your brain that's concerned with IT management you know to a degree you know why is that oh mm -hmm. is, the, is that that doesn't seem right. Is that latency? You know, whatever it may be. But yeah, once you've got it down, I can, I can see how that works. Anyway, fascinating stuff. Um, I think we're probably uh, getting to the point where it's... And I just wanted to in, to share with you the latest episode in my journey with the new Mac Pro, which is... I'm, I'm MacBook Pro, which I... CPU-wise is amazing. I bought this little... Um, don't, uh, this docking thing, which has got three USB 3 ports, uh, Ethernet cable, and uh, SD card reader, and an HDMI port. Brilliant. Bought a new hard drive today, so I've got two uh, sort of USB 3 hard drives. It won't power both of them. So I plug one in because I want to copy something from one drive to the other. Then I plug the other one in, and there's not enough power, and it just goes... <laughs> so I can have one drive or the other, but I can't plug two off a single USB port with this docking thing. I can't power two. So to be able to do that, I need to buy another $100 USB docking thing, 
and connect them, presumably. I mean, I, I wouldn't find out. But it just seems to me, huh? That, that's today's kind of like, what, what? So I had to take the other computer, the other drive, put it in a computer over there, attach it to the network, share it over the network, then copy from the network through the computer onto the second drive. What's going on with that? No, maybe I got maybe I bought the wrong docking station, but I would have thought a couple of USB drives should be able to power off a single USB C port, surely. Eh? You would what? think so, yes. Anyway, that's my moan of the day. But guys, thank you very much for joining us. Charles Chicky Reeves, are you uh are you gonna be um have you got anything exciting coming up you wanna tell us about? Or what what's your next gig? Uh next gig. Uh just a lot of recording. I just I gotta because my whole house is wired up for recording, so I I bring ba- up, I can set up a full band in my house and record them all at once. So I've got this sort of um, kind of rootsy Father John Misty st- style band that's coming in. We're going to record a few more songs, and that's the next thing on the horizon. And then so, I'll mix it eventually. Excellent. Is that the sort of uh, the Lanois style of uh, of recording where you just kind of utilize the space? And you know that there was that was very. Yeah. Very prominent in the uh, Eno and, uh, and Lamois used to do that, didn't they? You just kind that's of right. here's a really nice building. Let's put a load of multi-core in and have people record yeah. everywhere. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that's that's what I do. I, I set up the set up everybody in in one room, and and my my living room is an open plan, so it's like sixty feet by twenty five feet, so it's a good sized room. And um, yeah, I just set drums up there, guitar player. You should put the guitar amps a little off to the side, but I can get everybody in there, and then I just mic the room and. Use lots of omnidirectional mics. It sounds amazing. Wow. It's one of the best drums I've ever had. So. Excellent. So, what happens when your daughter wants to watch uh, something on CBBS? Or uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, there is that concern. But you know, she's totally cool with it. She she just stays up in her room and does her homework. Yeah. She just, wow. She's get, fine. Get, get you. And besides, <laughs> the Steinway is actually in her room. So if I want to use the Steinway, I have to kick her out of her own room. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish so. you every luck with that. That sounds like a fant- fantastic project. And Mr. Mark Doty, um, about to move. I forgot. I mean, Automatic Gainsay is your kind of moniker on YouTube. Uh, obviously, you're working on the Matrix Brute review. I mean, what else is coming up with you? Because you're, you're kind of off in a new direction, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm going to be living with the Matrix Brute for quite some time. There's so much I need to do with it. Uh, And also, I am still working on sort of building and progressing uh, the historical presentations that I've been doing under the name Authorship of Sound. And I'm hoping to sort of spread that into something that... uh, uh, will be available to colleges and museums, et cetera, where I can uh, use some of the more direct educational uh, opportunities that I have and experience that I have uh, to help people understand synthesis and the history of synthesis. Excellent. So, so you'll be on the road doing tours, speaking and, and presenting, right? I would love to be doing that, and that's what I'm pursuing, yeah. Excellent. That sounds great. And also, Mr. Dave Spears, G4 Software. Um, I hope uh, you've managed to get the emulsion from under your fingernails and uh, all of those things, and everything progresses with your new space. Yeah, uh, we, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, uh, we've done other stuff. We've got the M300 thing out. Yep. We've got that out. That's good. Actually, that's kind of a little bit of a remarkable instrument. Everything started Mellotron-wise with the Mark One, which very quickly became the Mark II, which was the dual manual thing, and it was kind of home entertainment-y. But the Stones and the Beatles and the guy from Genesis started using it in rock. In fact, even Princess Margaret and Peter Sellers had a Mark II. That's 
uh, reasonable <laughs> testament to it. But of course, then they started taking, you know, rock bands got into it and started taking it out on the road and it really wasn't a very good idea and it never, it rarely ended well. So they introduced this M300, uh, which really focused on the kind of lead stuff and left the rhythmic stuff to add a very small rhythmic section. Uh, but that in itself was kind of inherent with loads of difficulties. Um, brilliant idea, things like um, polystyrene tape guides alongside tape heads and tape. So you can imagine all the static hell that was going on there. That was quite good. So they only ever made 50 of those, but they redid the sound library for those. And it's quite an interesting sound library, which is what where our appetite. And we went, hey, can we do that? So that was good. Excellent. Uh, and other than that, building. Yes, building and building. And, of course, you can find all of that stuff at g4software.com. You can go and download and purchase and, and, and watch videos and all the other great content you've got on there. So uh, keep it up, Dave, when, you. you've got, when you've got time. And uh, what have we got coming up? I think I'm going to do, do another piece on the System 8. Uh, we've got Akai coming down. We're going to have a look at the MPC-X tomorrow. Uh, mm. And we're going to get the cv going and uh try and farm out some of the uh some of the material that's in whatever sequence that we get from uh, from the guys coming in and, and hook it up to a few synths as well so i think that'll be interesting i'm looking forward to that too so, oh yeah I, t- I, I forgot to mention that we uh, bumped into zoom at uh nam and they were very enamored with our our rigs which we have uh, tascam tr70ds kind of hanging underneath it as the mixer and they said you must try one of these so they sent one down and this is the zoom f4 which uh, Dave, you'll pro- uh, you will probably be the most delighted about it because I know you used to do location sound. This thing is a thing of beauty. Although it weighs probably twice the weight of our current thing, it just is really gorgeous. You've got time code, I.O. Uh, you've got, uh, yeah, all sorts of stuff going on. What's the on thing there. on the top? That, that's a, 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 a kind of cradle so you can ah, screw okay, it into yeah, a, yeah, a bolt yeah. and then it's got one on the bottom as well. Um, but it, it's just it, there, there's the time code IO on the back. It's got uh, busing out. You can. Do, it's just it is. Re- I mean, I've just been looking at it. Just, I haven't ch- checked the sound of it out yet, but uh, it's really lovely. It's it's one of oh. those things where you just go, like the old Nagras when you just saw one of those things that they just the beautifully milled out of aluminium. I mean, horrible to use, I'd imagine, but just a thing, a beautiful mm-hmm. thing. This is a beautiful thing, and I just think... I've uh, been so close on so many occasions recently to just pushing the go button on a Nagra. I bet you could buy them really cheap now. They're just beautiful the, things. They're you know? not. They're just, no, they've become kind of hipster tape recorders, but there's something about them. You know, I started using Nagras, and then it all kind of went into the camera, and I was using an SQM thing. But, um, yeah, they, they, they are just such so beautifully engineered it's a bit like chicky was saying with the watches this is you know a swiss masterpiece it's really really beautiful but i'll just, just i'll throw a few images up here a... for con- look at these these i mean they're just yeah that location record that is oh. milled alley are they aluminium i think they're, oh that's no that's but look at those things. They're just gorgeous. They were all, weren't they the things that you always used to see in the kind of spy movies that were the kind of, yeah, uh, yeah but they are just. <laughs> I watched I, a documentary the other day and it had somebody, oh, it was an SAS guy and it had, you know, this original SAS guy telling his story and they just focused on this Nagra, you know, while they were, while they, he, he was making <laughs> the story. And I just was sort of sat there and Louise just looked at me and went, oh dear. 
Yeah, look, there, <laughs> there, there's a close-up there. I, I, actually, I remember I did, uh, I borrowed, I can't remember, I borrowed a Naga for some reason and a shotgun mic because I remember I was working, this is when I was still, I was doing manual labour, I was working on a roofing job uh, as a labourer and they had lots and lots of scaffolding poles and I discovered that when you hit the end of a scaffolding pole it just made this amazing sound and I had a... Uh, a mirage at the time and I thought I must record that I mean I didn't have any kind of and I, for some reason and I can't remember why I ended up with one I ended up climbing up the roof and recording the sound of this scaffolding pole onto a Nagra so that I could then sample it into my mirage suffice to say by the time it came out of the mirage it didn't actually sound quite so good but you know yeah. I, I just that's the only time I've ever physically touched or or had anything to do with one and I don't even know I, I probably didn't know what I was doing in fact I'm sure I didn't know what I was doing but it was a very beautiful thing. It's the sort of thing that I think an object that's nice to have, isn't it? In the same way it, as it's probably the thing that the guy who's going to buy the or the girl who's going to buy the EMI desk is going to have one of those as well, just lying about the place. Maybe in the lavatory, you know, something like that. Uh, it's just beautiful. You can put these ambient textures on it and then you drop it down to like, you know, seven and a half inches per second and it just, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's a thing of beauty. But that Zoom sounds really fast. I'm just about to I'm waiting for this Lumix GX5 to come out, and I'm definitely hit and go on that. I oh, have yeah. been saving, so but of course the first thing I'm going to need is some audio input. So, hmm, interesting. I, I think we're going to wait until it comes out and then try and scoop up some much cheaper GH4s. But uh, that's 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 not really Sonic talk, is it? That's sort of like video, <laughs> video talk. <laughs> but it's relative. <laughs> it will affect what you see coming out of uh, what you see behind me. Anyway, thank you very much, everybody. That's been really good fun. And I'm glad we were able to talk some more kind of philosophical stuff for the synths as well. And um, so I think that's it for this week. So, uh, Charles, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, see you again uh, another time. Mark, always a pleasure to have you on. You must come more often. Uh, if you're not yes, moving, yes. thank you for joining us. And also, Mr. Dave Spears for joining us too. And uh, that's it for this week. Uh, so uh, just one quick reminder of the competition if you want to win uh, Isotope Neutron. I think I'm going to that one I want to press. Sorry, I, pre I pressed the wrong button. I moved. I thought if I moved my uh, controller, it would be easier to get to, but it's just changed my muscle memory. If you want to win Isotope Neutron, uh, tweet the hashtag expertaudio and the hashtag neutron to at Sonic State and at Isotope Inc. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for watching. Uh, we'll see you next time.